And um, I should explain a couple of things before we, we jump into this. I always feel like I should explain my accent um, because it, people get confused. Um, actually, it's probably even more confusing to me because I was just singing that song with your accent uh, because it's a Getty song, so it feels like it should be sung with a Northern Irish accent. But now I've got to make sure I don't do that because that would be really awkward if I preach with a Northern, Northern Irish accent when I've been here for less than 24 hours. Um, but I actually born and raised in Bristol. My parents were missionaries in Italy, so I spent some time in Italy, but I was never Italian. I was determined to be very English. And so I grew up in Bristol and uh, had a very strong Bristolian accent, which you do not want to hear. And then I went to the OM ship, and I served on the OM ship for a year, and I realized within days that nobody could understand the Bristolian accent if English was their second language. And so I sort of neutralized and did everything that my mother had always told me to do, pronounce your T's and all this kind of stuff. And then I went to America and picked up that accent. So I sort of do this Atlantic swing between Bristolian and US. And so if, I find if I don't explain it, afterwards people, the, the only question I get, where's, where's the accent from? And I'm like, I've just preached for half an hour, you're not listening. So if, if I do explain it, hopefully you'll then listen. The other thing, I just mentioned uh, the books. So it's confusing, isn't it, having so many book tables. But what can we say? We are Christians. And so there are uh, lots of books that you want to look at and you will uh, be sure to buy from the uh, Crescent Church book table. And Susie and Sharon, wonderful job. Cheer them on, give them your money, buy books. The table by the kind of glass closest to me here uh, has basically three books on it, and um, I would love to not carry them back on EasyJet tomorrow. So if I just mention them and then I'll, I'll explain kind of the, the pricing system, which is important to get because it's different from the other one. Okay, so I'll, I'll just make sure that's clear. So I've got a few copies of this, uh, John's Letters, it's just a little thin book. Uh, devotions, daily devotions through 1, 2, and 3 John. And then really the, the two kind of main books, the more book-like books, uh, Pleased to Dwell and Lost in Wonder. And these are both uh, a biblical introduction. Okay, so Pleased to Dwell, a biblical introduction to the incarnation. It goes from Genesis to Revelation, thinking about God the Son becoming one of us. And then Lost in Wonder, a biblical introduction to God's great marriage. Again, Genesis to Revelation, thinking about God and us being united together in marriage. Cunningly, it looks a little bit like a wedding dress. Okay, so that's the clue if you, if you don't read the subtitle. But let me mention, please to dwell, a little bit extra because this book, because it says incarnation and because we put straw on the front, basically means nobody ever buys it because everybody thinks it's a Christmas book. And so honestly, no pressure, but this is the only Sunday where this book ever sells, all right? Because basically next Sunday, you're already into December almost, and it's almost too late. Certainly by Christmas, who wants to receive a book about Christmas? It's not about Christmas. Uh, in fact, uh, the incarnation is for life, not just for Christmas, but it is cunningly laid out in 24 chapters, okay? So I would encourage you to buy a Cadbury's Dairy Milk, because we wouldn't want to be anti Cadbury's Dairy Milk, and then every day after you read a chapter, you can enjoy some chocolate. And then the next day, buy another big thing of dairy milk, and you know, it's, it's not restricted to little pieces, it's wonderful. But uh, basically what I do with the books is I'll tell you what I paid for them, and then you make up your own deal. All right, so the little books are like one or two pounds, almost nothing. 
The other two books are five, six, something like that. I'm not sure. I don't really remember. And I'm really not too worried about it in the sense that if you see a book that you would like or that you think would be helpful to give to somebody and you can't give anything, take the book. I would rather the book gets used than carried back and forth on EasyJet. Equally, I'm, I'm not going to discriminate. If you think I'm, I want to give a thousand pounds for that book, I'm totally open to whatever you think is appropriate. So, you know, totally flexible, but I would love to see the books uh, out there being, being used and hopefully enjoyed. So those are my three books. That rule does not apply to Susie and Sharon's books. Okay, those, they're probably priced, do what you're told. Mine, do what you like. All right, if you want to try and implement that rule somewhere, try, I don't know, M&S, to see if they can change. That'd be great, wouldn't it? Okay, so let's get into God's word, the book that matters. And we're in John, John's Gospel, chapter 9. And this is a This is a chapter that is relevant to every single one of us if we ever suffer. And the reality is that we do. We're in a world of suffering. If you turn on the television, you will see people suffering. If you look down the list of people that come to this church, you will know the people and you will know that some are suffering. There will be others on that list that are suffering and you don't know it. The reality is that we live in a suffering world. And if we're not suffering at this moment in time, we almost certainly know somebody who is. And sadly, we can predict without being prophetic that there will come a time when we do. And so suffering is the context. And it's the context for what happens in this chapter, because in this chapter there's a man who is blind. He was born blind. He's been blind literally every day of his life. And right at the start of the chapter, the disciples ask a question. Let's just start the chapter. We won't read the whole thing just yet. But it says this in verse 1. This is page 895 in, in a church Bible, by the way. As he passed by, that's Jesus, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? That's a cruel question, isn't it? It's a cruel question because it's only giving two options and they're not good ones. That sounds like politics, doesn't it? Like this or that. I don't know. Like two options. Did he sin or did his parents sin? Really? That's the the options we've got to choose from? It's cruel because they've said it about a man who's blind, but he can hear. And so presumably he's right there listening and maybe he's heard this kind of thing every day for years. Is it my sin? Is it my parents' sin? Essentially, what that question is asking is, should he feel guilty or should he feel angry? And those are the two options that the world tends to come up with. And let's not look down our noses at this as if, you know, this is some kind of weird question. We ask it too, don't we? When something happens, how quickly do we say, oh, what have I done to deserve this? Or when somebody's on the news and something terrible has happened to them, I wonder how often we have that same thought. Oof. Something's happened there. And it's not, it's not that, that we have to have a sort of Jewish mindset. We can have a, a karma mindset. 
What goes around comes around. There's some sin somewhere. There's some problem somewhere that, that's coming back to bite, whether it's reincarnation or whether it's you know, parental influence that needs counseling. There's all sorts of different options, but the world tends to default to when there's a bit of suffering, there must be a bit of a problem. And when there's a lot of suffering, there must be a major problem. And Jesus is going to tell them that that is not the right question. Jesus is going to demonstrate that yes, there is suffering in this world. And in a sense, we should say this, that yes, in a sense, generally speaking, there is suffering because of sin. If we humans had never sinned, there would be no suffering. But it's not right and it's not helpful to say this person's suffering for a specific sin. Just think about it. It, it, gets, uh, it gets it all wrong. It gets suffering wrong. It gets sin wrong. I mean, just think about it. If God were to be involved in punishing every sin that we commit, how many of us would still be here? Like we, we wouldn't be functioning, would we? The, the only way you can sort of think that there's this sort of cosmic justice thing going on is if you assume that only the worst sins, i.e. the sins of others, only those sins count. But the more you read the Bible, the more you realize actually the picture is bleak. We are sinners through and through as humans, as natural humans, the way we're born into this world. We are absolutely bankrupt before a good God. And so it can't be that. If we had time and if this was a classroom, we could go through a whole list of reasons why people might suffer. In some cases, it is because of something they've done wrong. If you drink and then you drive and then you crash and then you're hurt, there's a direct connection. But sometimes it's not that direct, is it? If somebody drinks and drives and crashes and somebody else is hurt, it's not them that has sinned. It's the first person. And what about spiritual warfare? And what about illness? And what about all the, the, the normal realities of living in a broken world? I wonder if some of you woke up this morning and as you sat up, you thought about the broken world as your back was aching and your knees were groaning and you're thinking, oh my goodness, I'm in my 40s. <laughs> or whatever. You know, the, it, it's not that you don't say, I must have sinned. You think, I must have aged. Because it's normal, isn't it? In a world, there's suffering. And so to ask the why question, I think, is missing the point. And Jesus is going to make it clear that that's missing the point. Let's cheat and let's look at the end of the chapter. I promise we'll go back and look at the rest. But verse 35. Jesus heard that they had cast him out. Having found him, he said to him, Do you believe in the Son of Man? The man who had been blind answered, Who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, You have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. He said, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. The question that suffering should cause us to ask it's not why, but who. That's what's going on here. In a suffering world where things are broken, where every one of us can tell that this is not the way it was meant to be. 
then we should be asking, who? who? Who can solve this? Who can fix this? Who can make things right? So let's go back and look at how this story unfolds. I have to tell you, this is one of my favorite 21 chapters in John's Gospel. And so I am excited to, to dive into this. So Jesus answered uh, the disciples, verse 3. It was not that this man sinned. Sorry, I'm just going to take my glasses off, sign of age. I'm at the stage between glasses helping. Uh, It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Does that sound familiar? John 8. We're talking about the journeys of Jesus, and this journey is is, uh, autumn. It's, I, I tend to think of it as a ticking clock. When you get into John's Gospel, after the first four chapters, which are really a very extended introduction, you come to chapter 5. Do you remember chapter 5? It's where the man gets healed on the Sabbath. And Jesus gets in trouble. And from that point on, the clock is ticking. From that moment forward, Jesus is kind of watching the clock go down. That was in the springtime. He journeys back to Jerusalem in chapter 7 and is still the same visit that we're looking at this time. And as Jesus is in Jerusalem in chapter 7, he says, this is why you're trying to kill me because I healed a man on the Sabbath. You think, when did you do that, Jesus? Six months before in chapter 5. And at one point they're saying, we're not trying to kill you. you, you must be mad. And then the next minute they're trying to kill him and he's spot on. And so that tension is still there. And the clock is ticking because in chapter 10, we're going to get a passing reference to the Feast of Dedication. That's December. And then chapter 11, we're going to have Jesus coming back again in January, February time when Lazarus is raised. And that seals the deal as far as they're concerned. He has to die. And so the clock is ticking. So here in chapter 9, it's not totally separated from chapter 8. In chapter 8, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. He, he offers light to a world that's in darkness. Now in chapter 9, he's going to give a man eyes to see the light of the world. Jesus says, verse 5, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, Go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. There's the miracle. Now, spitting on the ground, I don't want to make much of that. Um, I, I suppose it's one of those things that when you read it, you think, oh, that's a bit unusual. Maybe there's you know, some biblical explanation for that. Maybe you know, we can be clever and think, maybe this is like God taking the dust of the earth back in Genesis 2 and forming man. And here he is recreating. Because after all, when Jesus comes... That's what he does, right? He starts the new creation and he starts to make things right. Yet maybe, or maybe he just spit on the ground. Either way, he ends up spitting on the ground, which is kind of gross, isn't it? Please don't introduce this in your home groups or, you know, any any of the church ministries. Like we're now going to do the spitting ceremony. That's just not necessary, is it? When Jesus spits on the ground and then puts the mud on the man's eyes... What would be your instinct? Maybe you've been spat at and when someone spits at you, you you kind of have an instinct, don't you? You think, I want to go wash. 
right? If, especially if you're talking to somebody and, you know, it's like awkward. You don't want to make a scene of it. But inside you're going, oh, just spat on my face. And I, you know, and you, you want to wash. And so Jesus does this whole spitting mud thing on his eyes. And then he says, go wash in the pool of Siloam. Anyone been to Israel? I went to Israel about 20 years ago. And I went to the pool of Siloam. I recently discovered that I didn't. Because they found it since then. So what they thought was the Pool of Siloam now isn't the Pool of Siloam. The Pool of Siloam is the Pool of Siloam. Anyway, confusing to me, but what I saw was a fascinating pool too. But, but it's, it's kind of, if, if, if this man was up near the temple where the crowds are, up on the sort of around the outskirts, he wouldn't be in because he was blind and he couldn't go in. But he would have been in that environment. To go to the Pool of Siloam was to go quite a distance, several hundred meters down the hill, not the one that we would think it was when I went the other way to the, the bigger one. And then he washed. And I wonder if in that moment as he washed the mud away and for the first time in his life he could see, I wonder if he could see his own reflection. Wouldn't that be amazing? Just to see for the first time. Like how do you make sense of seeing for the first time? I suppose it's a bit like when you see somebody that you've heard on the radio. You ever done that? You know, you hear somebody for years and then you see them and go, you're kidding. You don't, I didn't think you looked like that. I mean, that, this, this is that on steroids. This man is seeing everybody for the first time. He's seeing everything for the first time. And he's come back seeing, uh, looking at the, the, the temple, looking at the buildings, the street sellers, the colors, the clothes, the, the faces, everything, the animals. He's seeing for the first time. And he comes back. And then it says, verse 8, the neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some said, it is. Others said, no, but it's like him. He kept saying, I am the man. That's a verse I like to take out of context and think in 21st century terms. He kept saying, I am the man, I am the man. But no, he's, he's literally saying, yeah, it's me. It, it is me, right? He's saying it is me. And they're all having this conversation about him like they probably did before. You know, if someone's blind, people talk about them as if they're not human. It's horrible. As if they're not present. And they're having this chat. Is it him? It's not. It is. It isn't. It is. He keeps insisting. And they said to him, so how were your eyes opened? Good question. He answered, the man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said, go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. They said to him, where is he? He said, I don't know. Again, that's not a very kind question. Jesus put mud on his eyes when he couldn't see and sent him off down the hill. And now they're asking him, where did Jesus go? He's like, I don't know. I wasn't watching. I wasn't seeing at the time. He could have gone in any direction. I've got no idea. I mean, this chap is uh, hes having a, a bit of an intriguing day. So, verse 13. They brought to the Pharisees the man who had formerly been blind. Now, this is where it gets exciting. Because the Pharisees are sort of the representative label for the authorities. Who weren't just Pharisees, but certainly including them. Now, the authorities in Jerusalem were the people of the book. They memorized, they quoted, they knew their Old Testament. And so this should now be a party. Right? This should now be an incredible scene as they probably want to verify that it's a genuine miracle. And then 
pull out the party streamers because this is not a miracle that tends to happen. In fact, you go through the Old Testament, the Bible as they knew it. A man who was blind and then could see never happened. There were other miracles in the Old Testament, healing of leprosy and various things, but blind and then seeing? Their minds would have gone not to the first reference, but to the place on the scroll. They would have gone Psalm 146, verse 8. The Lord makes the blind to see. This is what God does. Their minds would have gone to Isaiah 42, verse 7, where it talks about the coming Messiah, the coming servant of Yahweh, who would give sight to the blind. And then all through the rest of that chapter and into 43 and so on. Their minds should have gone to the Old Testament. This is an absolute, crystal clear evidence the Messiah has arrived. God has stepped in. They should be celebrating. So let's eagerly see what happens. Now, it was a Sabbath. Not surprising, is it? It was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. So the Pharisees again asked him how he had received his sight. By the way, if you're not seeing what's coming here, let me just give it away. They didn't spot the Messiah. They didn't connect their scriptures with Jesus. And so they're going to get it absolutely wrong. And so they go after this guy. How, how did he receive his sight? He said to them, he put mud on my eyes and I washed and I see. True. Some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God, referring to Jesus, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, well, how can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And there was a division among them. So they again said to the blind man, what do you say about him since he has opened your eyes? He said, he's a prophet. Okay, not bad. A bit like the woman at the well. She went from, you know, sir to a prophet. So yeah, that's progress. He's not there yet. But the Jews, that is the, the authorities, those in charge, the Jews did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight and asked them, is this your son who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? His parents answered, we know that this is our son and that he was born blind, but how he now sees, we do not know, nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him, he is of age, he will speak for himself. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews. For the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. Therefore his parents said, he is of age, ask him. They're nervous. They're looking at the authorities and they're backing away saying, no, 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 we're not going to submit to questioning. We don't want to be dragged into this. So for the second time, they called the man who had been blind and said to him, give glory to God. Ironic, because he had been. We know that this man is a sinner. He answered, whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. That's beautiful, isn't it? Imagine the, the robes, the doctorates standing in front of him. Imagine this kind of collection of religious, highly educated authority figures whose business it was to know the truth and they're asking him a question. And he's just saying, well, I can't really answer your question, but I can tell you what happened. 
That's a really important thing for us to see the value of. Maybe you've come to, uh, come to know Jesus and to have faith in Jesus only recently and you look around and you see people with all this uh, awareness and knowledge and they quote books and they've, like, they own books and it's kind of intimidating, you know? And sometimes you think, well, you know, you're, you're friends that you used to hang out with, you know, and they saw you change and then they come to you and they say, what's going on with you? And you think, well, hang on a second. I just need to attend church for a few years to try to make sense of this. I can't get enough sermons at church, so I'm going to get podcasts through the week. That's not enough. I'm going to go to Bible school. I'm going to get degrees in theology. And then I can answer the question. And guess what? By the time you get to that stage, those friends have long since left because you ignored them. When people come to you with a question and you think, I haven't got an answer, that's fine. I'm not in any way antagonistic to apologetics and learning how to answer. Do that. But if somebody asks you a question, give them what you've got. And if all you've got is, I don't know. But I do know this. Jesus has changed my life. Give them that. Because they can't argue with it. It's powerful. It's a life changer. So many people down through the years have come to faith in Jesus based on observing a change and then hearing a testimony. It's a, an incredibly significant way the church grows. And so if you're new to the faith and you, your friends are asking you what's going on with you, you used to laugh at this joke and now you don't. You used to swear and now you don't. What's going on? There seems to be a change. You seem so peaceful, so joyful, so something, so busy on Sundays. I don't know. But they're asking you a question. What's happened? How do you explain it? What's going on? I don't know. But I do know this. Jesus has changed me. Give them your testimony. And if you've been a Christian a while and you've kind of lost touch with all those friends, make some new ones. Just a little aside, you know, join a, a club or take a class, do something, get around somebody that doesn't attend Crescent Church so that they can ask you, hey, what, what's going on? Well, give them your testimony. It's powerful. And here's this man standing in front of the authorities saying, I don't know the answer to your questions, but I do know this. I was blind, and now I see. Do you remember the guy in John 5, if you were here a few weeks ago? The man who was lying by the pool of Bethesda. And I don't know how it was preached, I should have listened to that sermon ahead of time, but apologies if I tread on any toes with what I say, but essentially it's a little bit weird. Right, this guy is there, and Jesus comes to him and initiates and says, do you want to, you know, do you want to be healed? He's like, well, I've can't get in the water and nobody to help me, you know, gives a bit of an excuse. So Jesus heals him and then he's carrying his mat, obviously on the Sabbath, because Jesus always got busy on the Sabbath. And so he's carrying his mat and the authorities come to him and they say, Oi, twinkle toes, you shouldn't be carrying your mat on the Sabbath. And so he's like a deer in the headlights. He, he says, well, wait, 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 no, no, no. Don't, don't do me for this. I can give you the person that told me to do this. It's kind of like if a, a person gets caught by the police carrying drugs. No, 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 no. I'm carrying, but I can give you the dealer. That's basically what happens in John 5. He's carrying his mat, but he can give them the dealer. And they say, who is he? And he says, I don't know. Slipped away. And then Jesus finds him. 
you remember the story? Jesus finds him and tells him, don't sin anymore, which is an intriguing, listen to the sermon, they might have explained it. And, and, and then, then it's almost like Jesus says, here's my business card. He says, thank you very much, and goes straight to the authorities and says, this is the man. It's like his first journey on foot is to get Jesus in trouble. I don't know, but there's nothing about that guy in John 5 that makes me think, brought to faith in Jesus. It just doesn't strike me as having any real response in the right sense. Compare and contrast with this man. In John 5, it was get Jesus in trouble, put the focus on Jesus, you know, I want to get out of here. But look at this man, this man who was blind, who's had no opportunity, no education. He's been scoffed at, laughed at, jeered at, probably spat at his whole life. And now he's standing in front of the highest court in the land. So they said to him, verse 26, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? Verse 27, he answered them, I have told you already and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? Oh, I love watching these kind of, you know, do you, ever, do you ever watch, you know, people having a bit of an argument that think this is fun? I'm loving this. There he is, a man who had been blind and begging that morning. And now it's like he's puffed out his chest and he's poking these authority figures in the chest and they're backed up against the wall and he's saying, do you want to become his followers? Way to go, I love it. So they don't go you know, too big on that idea. So they reviled him, reviled him, he was used to that, saying, you are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. So obviously they're thinking Messiah, because Messiah is tied to location. And for the authorities, because Jesus was from Nazareth, he couldn't be the Messiah, because the Messiah comes from Bethlehem. I need to read Luke's Gospel. So, uh, verse, where are we, 29, verse 30, the man answered, well, this is amazing. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshipper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. He's probably researched that. Maybe sitting beside the road, maybe even as the authorities walked past on their little procession up to the uh, temple, maybe at one point he'd even asked them, Excuse me, sorry to bother you, excuse me. So I, I, I don't mean to keep you, and I don't want to interrupt what you're doing, I know it's really important, but please, can you give me hope? Has a man born blind ever been healed? And they lifted up their noses, maybe, I don't know. They lifted up their noses and scoffed and said, never. Maybe he's quoting them to them, that's pure speculation, but it's kind of an interesting thought. And so he's saying that this has never happened. And so his conclusion, verse 33, if this man were not from God, he could do nothing. They answered him, you were born in utter sin and would you teach us? And they cast him out. It's horrible, isn't it? It's horrible how this man is experiencing the greatest day of his life. And the people who pour water all over it are the most religious people there. Because they know better. 
because they know that they can see everything clearly and it's not possible that this man could have been healed, that this other man could maybe be the Messiah. No way, not possible. And so Jesus heard that they had cast him out. That's major. He's an outcast. He's not allowed to participate in the life of Judaism. Jesus heard that they had cast him out and having found him, he said, do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? And Jesus said to him, you have seen him and it is he who is speaking to you. He said, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. In a world of suffering, There are hundreds of reasons why we suffer. And the why question can be an impossible pursuit trying to find an answer. But the who question is very simple. Who can bring hope in the midst of suffering? Who can bring help to a man born blind? Who can bring life to people walking in death? The who is standing right in front of this man, smiling at him. Lovingly inviting him to trust in him. And so the man born blind says, I believe, and he worshipped. He could see. He could see and he could hear that this person speaking to him was the Messiah, the one sent from God. More than that, he was worthy of worship. He is God. And so he bowed down in worship before him. It's a beautiful, beautiful scene Verse 39, just to finish the chapter, Jesus said, For judgment I came into this world, that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, Are we also blind? Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say we see, your guilt remains very powerful finish to the chapter, isn't it? In fact, it's a powerful introduction to what's about to follow in chapter 10. Because these authority figures, these experts, they could see. They were convinced that everything they could see was just right and they knew exactly what was what and they knew what to do and their perspective was always spot on. And the truth of the matter was actually right in front of them. It was very clear. God is able to give eyes to the blind. He is able to help us to see the truth. And we as humans are able to refuse to see what stood right before us. God never forces anybody. God doesn't kind of supernaturally override our own heart response. And if we choose to refuse the work of the Spirit to help us to see Christ, we can refuse, we can kick against the goads, as Saul would say later, uh, as the Lord would say to Saul. We can be resistant, we can say, no, I know it's not true, I know it's not true. And we can stand firm in that. And if we do, then we're in the same place as them, blinded while thinking that we see. But if we'll humble ourselves and recognize that maybe I can't see everything. Maybe what I see isn't as clear as I think it is. Maybe I don't have all the answers. Maybe I'm desperately in need of God to give me sight to understand him and his plans and his purposes and the person of Jesus. If we will be humble before him, then the Messiah has come and he wants to give us sight, spiritual sight. 
where we can see who he is and we can worship him. And we can, in the midst of suffering, discover life itself. But Jesus is talking to those religious leaders because they, as shepherds of Israel, had just beaten up one of the sheep. Just beaten him up and thrown him out, torn apart, thrown to the ground. There he was, outside of the inner circle. And so as the chapter finishes, Jesus is turning to them. And guess what he's going to talk about next time? In chapter 10, he's going to talk about shepherds. Good shepherds himself and bad shepherds them. But I don't want to steal next week's message. What I want us to do as we finish today is ask ourselves a very simple question. Is our confidence in God enabling us to see the truth? Or is our confidence in our own ability to make sense of this world? Uh, To put it another way, are we standing alongside the blind beggar who could now see, worshipping Jesus? Or are we standing alongside the authority figures thinking that we know it's okay, we know and thereby condemning ourselves. It's very serious. It's a very important point to finish on. And praise God that he doesn't come to the brightest and the best and try to convince them. He comes to the broken, the hurting, the suffering, the humbled and the humiliated, people like you and like me, who really in this world's eyes maybe don't have everything altogether. And he offers us to give us eyes spiritual eyes that can see him for who he is so that we can bow and we can worship. Let's pray. Father, I pray that by your spirit's work in each one of us, you would take us from just asking why to start to ask who. That we would look in every challenge and every difficulty for your purposes, that we would look in the midst of everything that's going on around us and even within us, that we would look to you and ask you for the help and the hope and the life and the sight that we need. And then, Lord, as we see, as we see the who of Jesus Christ and we fall down to worship before him, then may we say how as well. How can we bring glory to God? in this circumstance, in this challenge. I just pray as we finish for any here who are suffering right now, for any who are not feeling this this thought as a theory, but are feeling it as a very present reality. Lord, would you draw especially near to them, encourage them, carry them, bless them. And for each one of us, may our lives be characterized by the boldness we see with this man. Not having all the answers, but knowing the answer to the question, who? Lord, we would love to be able to speak for you. Please give us that privilege, we pray. We ask in Jesus' name, our Messiah, our God, the one who gives us eyes to see. Amen.